Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, this is a, a musician joke, and maybe not everyone will get it. But uh, how do you get a drummer off your doorstep? Pay for the pizza, everybody. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Michael Fitzpatrick of soul pop band Fitz and the Tantrums. He's not a drummer, nope. but he is a musician, which is why we chose his joke to start this, our super spectacular all-music episode. That's right. Featuring our favorite chats with Lars Ulrich, Gustavo Dudamel, Miguel, Ricky Skaggs, Jenny Lewis, Steve Martin. Also, David Crosby, Nancy Sinatra, Weird Al Yankovic, Carrie Brownstein, and so many more. It's like a music festival curated by an insane person. Us. But let's kick <laughs> things off with words of wisdom from Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich. A while back on our show, he answered a question from a diminutive listener who wanted to know what to do when tall people blocked her view at a concert. I can sympathize. I mean, I'm uh, closer to 5'7 than I am to 5'8. So I've been in, in that particular situation often. I mean, part of, I guess part of the experience of going to a rock show is that it's supposed to be a collective experience yeah. rather than can we, you know, make sure that each one of us has the perfect viewing corridor. <laughs> so, I mean, there is, you know, you know what I'm saying? There was at least part of the reason that I went to shows was because I wanted to belong to something that was bigger than myself. Mm. It wasn't just necessarily about like, I've got to go and get the best seat in the house and make sure that it's sort of like this perfect evening. It's, I got to go mm. and understand that there are other people that feel like I do, that want to experience the same things that I do, and that I'm not alone in my world, you yeah. know what I mean? So maybe we could leave a little bit of the search for perfection at the door. Ah, uh, what a sweet metal god he is. Yeah. Although, honestly, if you're at a Metallica concert, a view really isn't such a big deal because you're if you're headbanging, by definition, your head's only facing up half of the time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you look at the floor. But listen, people, whether you need it or not, for the next 45 minutes or so, you have the best seat in the house for a slew of great conversational performances, mm. starting with this one from Gustavo Dudamel. At the tender age of 33, he is the Grammy-winning conductor of the L.A. Philharmonic and Venezuela's Simon Bolivar Orchestra. When I spoke to him, he was curating a festival of classical and pop music from the U.S. and South America called Americas and Americans. And Gustavo, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a big honor, and I'm very happy to be talking to you. Let's start talking a little bit about your development as a musician. You were the product of the Venezuelan public music education system known as El Sistema. Thousands and thousands of kids have gone through this and turned out amazing musicians. What? Tell me a little bit about your first day. Do you remember your first day and what happened? I was around, yes, 40 years old. I, re I remember my first day. This was in a very colonial house, blue. I remember exactly the color of the house. You know, going there to this classroom, meeting my friends, still some of them play in the Simon Bolivar Orchestra. And in my first day, they were checking our voice, how we can follow a sound. For your singing voice? Exactly. They were playing in the piano and we were like, eh, oh, uh, I have been a terrible singer. <laughs> Opera was ruled out immediately. Yes, it was horrible, <laughs> but was in tune. Then uh, they were showing us musical symbols, you know, the notes. We started immediately to practice solfege, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do. And that was the day. 
And I went back to my house very happy. I was thinking that I knew it, you know, a new language. It was really, really beautiful. You started as a trombonist after your father, correct? It was my dream. It was my dream, but I, my arm was too small. To slide the trombone, your arm was too short? Exactly. And then I tried the trumpet and I finished playing violin. <laughs> you know, I jumped from the brass section to the string section in one moment. So you started off playing music. Clearly you love playing. Why, why become a conductor? You know, was, you know, going to the concerts and listening and watching, you know, that guy, you know, moving the arms. I asked my grandmother, please, can I have as a present a baton? You know, became my favorite game because I had my LPs. Your albums? Albums, you know, but LPs, you know, it's still not CD. Yeah. Vinyl records. Vinyl records. And rehearsing, stopping, you know, indications to the musicians. You would sort of conduct your records? Exactly. I was doing concerts for my family. It was like very natural to become conductor. Let me ask you, actually, your conducting style is just sort of notoriously physical. You're incredibly fun to watch. How much of that is developed because you want to entertain the audience? And how much of it is because you're just moved by the music? If it's, if it's to entertain, then it's not music. You are not honest. Every movement that the conductor do is part of the music. Of course... Every conductor has a different way to conduct. But for me, you know, I do now less movements than I was doing before. Really? You used to be wilder. Yeah, because I was, you know, 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about America and the Americas. It's very clear from this program that classical is not the only thing you're interested in. Give me a musician that you think people would be surprised that you are really into. Oof, my God. Aerosmith? I like. Aerosmith, really? Absolutely, you know. I love, well, some songs of Beyoncé I like, you know. Of, of who, sir? Beyoncé. Beyoncé. Beyoncé, ah, it's that one. For example, uh, Beatles, Queen, I love Queen. Uh, Queen is kind of like classical music sometimes. Well, They've got multiple movements in their songs. It's beautiful because it shows, you know, rock is connected. All right. We have two questions that we ask everyone. First of all, what question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, would you least like to be asked? Which hair product do you use? <laughs> what hair Which product do you use? It's always, always people ask me that. You do have the best hair in classical music, I will say. <laughs> well, it's very cheap. I go to the hair dresser, you know, every five months. So I don't have the problem to go every month. It's longish, is exactly. what you're saying. Exactly. Anyway, I won't ask you about it, but I do congratulate you on your Thank hair. You. <laughs> Thank you very much. The second question is, tell us something we don't know about anything. It can be about yourself, or it can just be a piece of trivia. Well, Mama, maybe people know that that I practice a lot of sports. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Karate, for example. I went to competitions and everything. And people, maybe that is why I move a lot, <laughs> conducting. <laughs> Seriously, do you think you could chop a brick in half with a baton? <laughs> maybe.
Gustavo Dudamel. He is the music director of the L.A. Philharmonic, among other orchestras. You are listening to their Grammy-winning rendition of Brahms' Symphony No. 4. Gustavo also recently wrote his first film soundtrack for the movie Liberatador. And as regular listeners know, on this show we often ask musicians to give us a soundtrack of sorts. That's right. Namely songs they'd play during a dinner party. And one of our favorite examples came courtesy of young New Orleans musician Benjamin Booker. His raw mix of punky blues and rock caught the ear of Jack White, who picked him as his tour mate. His recent debut album earned rave reviews, and our listeners raved about his musical taste after hearing this party playlist. Hey, this is Benjamin Booker, and uh, I just had an album come out. It's my first album, and here is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song would probably be Stoned and Starving by Parquet Courts, because if I'm having a dinner party, people need to come start. Parquet Courts is a New York band that originated in Texas. I was walking through Ridgewood, Queens. I was flipping through magazines. I was so starving. I guess they've been described sometimes as cowpunk, but it's just guitar rock, like amazing guitar rock. They'll have like a really catchy groove going on and then just break out into like ruckusy noise. I guess I've had this problem at parties before uh, with my choices, I guess, for dinner parties. And maybe it's like a little too heavy, but you know, you're, this is my party. <laughs> I'm picking the songs and they got to deal with it. And uh, if this is before we're eating, I think it's okay. I think it's fine to have a little feedback. Song number two is Any Other Way by Jackie Shane, uh, and I'm doing the live in 63, I believe it is, version. Here you come again. You say that you're my friend. Jackie Shane is an R&B singer from Toronto, I believe, who used to wear like women's clothing and like uh, dress up like this black soul singer cross-dressing guy. And it's the most incredible stuff that you've ever heard. Tell her that I'm happy. Be sure and tell her this. Tell her that I'm gay. I don't think people know very much about this guy. And that's what makes it so crazy. It's like, what was happening in Toronto that you have this guy who's doing stuff that's completely taboo in the early 60s? Where does he come from? I don't know. You tell me. You tell me. <laughs> this is uh, the part where we're having food. It's good background music, you know. Soft, but uh, also like entertaining. People might stop eating for a second and be like, oh, what is this? And I'll be like, oh, it's Jackie Shane. <laughs> now that's all I've got to say, my friend. This is the last song for song number three is William Onyebor, Why Go to War. He's this very uh, enigmatic character. Apparently he had gone to like film school or something in Russia. Uh, he's from Africa. Came back to Africa with like all of these keyboards and stuff like that and just started making ridiculous wild synth music. He was doing stuff that I guess a lot of people couldn't do because 
he was somehow like independently wealthy for some reason and was the only person in Africa who had this kind of equipment. So he, he's getting incorporated in the 70s like dance music with some African stuff and it's it's really cool stuff. Why go to war? Why not the end of the party, you know, having a few drinks and uh, maybe getting a little loose, maybe maybe they hit the dance floor, the living room dance floor. It's a great way to, to end the night. If I had to pick one of my own songs for a dinner party, I'd probably pick Have You Seen My Son, just because it's got a few different parts in it, some slower, but also some like upbeat, wild, uh, freak out moments. Yeah, I think it'd be cool. It'd be interesting uh, to see what people think. Benjamin Booker. He is part of the Sunday lineup at this week's big Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival. Enrico, after Benjamin told us about Jackie Shane, yeah. I immediately went out and bought that record. Oh, and I man. can attest, it is fine, fine music, specifically for that sweet moment post-dinner party and pre-huge sink of crazy dishes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what Jackie Shannon intended it for. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, folks, <laughs> stick around. There's more of this all-music episode of the Dinner Party Download to come. Everyone from Miguel to Nancy Sinatra, back in a minute. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Here's pop legend Nancy Sinatra telling us how to wear headphones when you have a giant bouffant. That is the bane of my existence. I tell you, there. if I have to go out somewhere after work, I will separate the front part of my hair, like across mm-hmm. from ear to ear across the back. I'll push it forward, and then I'll put the headset on, and then I'll throw the hair back over the headset so that it's oh, not squished. Nice move. The other thing I do is I'll just take the band of the headphones, put it back behind your head, shove it all forward and you look ridiculous but the hair is poofing out in front well that's what's important it's how it looks afterwards isn't it you bet nancy sinatra singer of course of these boots are made for walking that advice was a real game changer for me and my bouffant you always look great now Thanks. And folks, that's just a sample of the takeaway info yet to come on this and all music episode of the Dinner Party Download. Think of it as a mixtape of our favorite moments with musicians. That's right. Coming up, we'll hear from Weird Al Yankovic, Jenny Lewis, Steve Martin talking banjo, and many more. But since we just spoke with the Sinatra, we figure it's only appropriate we hear a bit about her dad. Ah, uh, yes. Here's pop legend Paul Anka talking about writing the man's signature hit, My Way. Well, it seemed a big deal because it was all predicated on having dinner with Frank Sinatra. Remember him? Heard of him. And uh, he said he's quitting show business. He was going to do one more album, and he was out of there. And he said, kid, you never wrote me that song. Because he always used to tease me about uh, (laughs) writing him a hit. But you have to realize back then, with my hits, Puppy Love and Lonely Boy, if I ever gave him one of those, he would have thrown me out of a window. (laughs) 
Why would he have thrown you out of a window? He didn't like pop music. He hated it. He hated mm. Presley. He hated everything. It was all in the, the American songbook, which is cool. But was he jealous of you, do you think? I don't think so. <laughs> no. Frank, Frank wasn't jealous of Frank anyone. wasn't Maybe because I had a lot of hair, but that was about it. <laughs> but at that point, I, I went home back to New York where I was living, and I said, wow, he's quitting. So 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting at my typewriter, and metaphorically, I just started with, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. And in five hours, it was Sinatra's song. I'd never had a feeling like that in the completion of any kind of a song. And wow. two months later, he called me in New York. He was in the studio in L.A. I'm in New York. He put the phone up to the speaker, and I heard my way for the first time <sighs> over the phone. And, man, I started crying. It was really? a movement, yeah. And now... The end is near And so I face The final curtain Paul Anka, ladies and gentlemen. Right. And Rico, when most people think of Canadian musicians, they probably think of Neil Young. Yeah. But Paul, born in Ottawa, might be the most successful of them all. That, take that, Rush. That's right. Johnny right. Mitchell. All right, <laughs> folks. We've heard a story from a crooner. Now it's time for a story about one. Almost. Here to tell a tale is folk musician and storyteller Todd Snyder. Hello, everybody. My name is Todd Snyder. I'm going to tell you a story about the time that Tony Bennett stole 65 bucks from me. And he knows it, too. My wife agreed to let me buy an old car. And I looked in the paper and I found a 1964 convertible Rocket 88. The very first rock and roll song by Ike Turner was called Rocket 88. V8 motor, this smart and design, black convertible top, and the gals don't mind. Sporting with me, riding all around town for joy. The car was in great shape. It's not now. These days, the top of the car won't go up. So I should say it's not a, actually a convertible. It doesn't convert. It's a, I don't even know what you call that. But one of my favorite things in the world to do is wash it. So anyway, it was a beautiful day, and I was down at the car wash, power hosing the car, which I sincerely find relaxing. And right then, in that lovely moment, this guy comes walking toward me, either homeless or at least prone to, you know, sleeping outside. In a mildly intimidating manner, he said, uh, Hey, how about you give me a couple of bucks and I help you wash your car? So I like screwed up the little nerve I had and I said, listen, man, I really find it relaxing when I do this alone. How about if I give you a couple bucks and you don't help me wash my car? And no, this guy says, no, man, I think I'm going to help you wash your car. I don't even know if that's legal. You can't just show up and tell someone you're going to mow their lawn. That just can't be legal. But I didn't know what to do, and I was scared, so I screwed down all the nerve that I'd screwed up and said, fine, you know. So he picked up the brush and said, you squirt the soap water and I'll scrub. Yes, okay, you're the boss, man. And we pretty much did the whole car that way. And as we did, we started talking, like, you know, about places we'd been, troubles we'd had, girls we knew. Tiny and I got to tell you that by the time we finished, not only did... You know, I like him, but the car was clearly cleaner and better off for having been washed by two guys rather than just one. Make me feel fine. He said he'd keep an eye out for me. And then as he was about to walk off, I said, like, hey, man, one more thing. Honestly, when you came over here, were you going to rob me? And he laughed and said, yeah, man. And 
I just reached out my hand and said, what's your name, man? You know, without even blinking, this guy says, I'm Tony Bennett. And without blinking more than three or four times, I said, well, great, I'm Bing Crosby. Nice to meet you. His eyes got like wide and he started yelling, are you messing with me, man? I said, what do you mean? You started it. You told me that you were Tony Bennett. And he goes, what do you mean? I am Tony Bennett. And he pulls out this ID and it had his photo on it and it said Tony Bennett. And I was like, oh, you got me. I'm wrong. You're right. And I'm not Bing Crosby at all. And then we hugged. And I'm pretty sure, and by pretty sure I mean a thousand percent sure, that it was during that hug that Tony Bennett stole 65 bucks out of my coat pocket. I always want to add when I get done with that story because my friends, they'll be like, uh, oh, well, I thought you, I thought you were going to tell us about that. I left my heart in San Francisco, Tony Bennett. And so sorry if there was confusion about that. I was talking about the Tony Bennett that uh, hangs around the, the East Nashville car wash. Nashville folk rocker Todd Snyder. Yeah. That tale and others are compiled in his book, I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like. And Rico, maybe that car wash guy is responsible for the other Tony Bennett's heart being stuck in San Francisco. I, yeah, I thought Tony just kind of left his heart there, but maybe you're right. Maybe he was robbed. I think it could have been stolen. Speaking of San Francisco, not long ago, we spoke with a man whose music was everywhere in that city during its hippie heyday, David Crosby. He was, of course, a member of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and occasionally young. He was one of the founding members of The Birds, but one of his lesser-known projects also may be his greatest, his 1971 debut album, If I Could Only Remember My Name. Critics have called it the classic California album, featured cameos from Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and many more. When I spoke to David from backstage at a concert in Maine, he told me about making it. I can tell you how the whole thing happened. I was actually in a very bad space. A girlfriend of mine had gotten killed in a car wreck, and I was not equipped to deal with that. And we were making Deja Vu in a studio in uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. When I uh, got done with it, the studio seemed to be the only place that I really could deal with life right then. Mm. So I stayed in the studio. And I had a lot of songs. I mean, we, obviously, when you're making a record with four guys, you, you only get a certain amount of songs on a record. Yeah. So I had a bunch of songs, and I had a bunch of friends, the people from the airplane, people from, from Grateful Dead, particularly Jerry, but people from Santana, all over, Quicksilver. We all knew each other, and there was a, a distinct anti-Hollywood kind of, let's not be competitive, let's not be showbiz, let's instead... Uh, help each other and contribute to each other's music uh, mm-hmm. feeling in San Francisco. It was an ethic that was alive at the time. Very elevating thing. You saw people willingly giving to try and make other people's music be better. opening track on that you sing with Graham and and Neil Young music is love is that kind of a thesis statement maybe for for you you know what that is that was a jam (laughs) you know I had that phrase uh, everybody's saying music is love but I didn't have a song I just went into the studio and uh, Graham and Neil showed up and we were just fooling around and uh, that was I think the first take and I said gee that was fun okay let's record a real song and they said that was a real song And they said, well, wait a minute. 
you know. And so they asked for the tape, and they took the tape, and then Neil, who absolutely has no idea how to play bass, played bass on it. Really? Yeah. And then Nash, who has absolutely no idea how to play conga drums, played conga drums on it. And they brought the tape back and said, here, here's the first track of your album. <laughs> So you said that you just had the phrase music is love lying around and you threw it out there. But am I wrong in thinking that it makes up part of your philosophy of life? No, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I don't want to be pompous about it, but yeah, that's part of my basic f- philosophy of life, I guess. You know, music has a, a lot of jobs. Part of it's just to make you boogie. Uh, part of it is our thing as being troubadours, where we carry the news from one town to another. And yeah. part of it's being the town crier. It's 11.30 and we have a bunch of idiots in Congress. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of different things, but the part of it that appeals to me the most is taking you on a voyage, taking you to a place you haven't been, and mm-hmm. helping you feel something there. Mm-hmm. That's what I really love about it. There's a lot of music, there's a lot of love, but there's also a lot of um, decadence. Stupidity is the word you're looking for. (laughs) Stupidity might have been the word I was looking for. It was unprecedented what was made available to you and your fellow successful musicians. Well, and it's so damaging, man. If you hand a young person in their 20s several million dollars, they will go crazy. Trust me, this is a given. It's like the law of gravity. You can't... (laughs) Can't give a person with no experience millions of dollars and expect them not to screw up. They will. Look at, uh, what's his name? The Beeb. <laughs> he's a perfect example. The Beeb? Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber, yes. You know, he's just a kid and he hasn't a clue. And somebody gave mm-hmm. him millions of bucks. And of course, what does he do? Go out and get in trouble every other day. Yeah. This has been a sort of a standard formula for disaster from the beginning. What is one of the most important lessons you've learned so, so far in your 70-some years here? To value the music, to realize that it is a, a, an elevating force in, in the human experience and that it's a treasure. And that if you are gifted with the ability to make music that can actually help people feel something, you should treat it with respect. It's getting to the point where I'm no David Crosby, a perfect addition to this all-music episode of the Dinner Party Download, because as a guy who performed at the first Monterey Pop and Woodstock festivals, he knows a thing or two about music celebrations. Agreed. And celebrating. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now let's mosey down the West Coast from San Francisco to Los Angeles, which musician Jenny Lewis calls home. 
She gained fame with her band Rilo Kylie and as a member of the electropop supergroup The Postal Service. Her latest solo album Voyager was a top 10 hit. Here she is to DJ your dinner party. Hey there, I'm Jenny Lewis, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. I've only imagined the dinner party as playing out in my own home, which we affectionately nicknamed Mint Chip because it's dark brown and mint green, and it looks like an ice cream cone. I've chosen songs for different types of situations. You know, most importantly, what will get people out of your house. But before we kick people out, we're going to lull them into a sense of security with a song from the 80s by a band called Derudi Column. Um, and the song is called Amigos and Portugal. The song was first played to me by Jimmy Tamborello from the Postal Service. And we did a, a reunion tour last year, and we had a, a record player with us. And this was the first uh, record that we put on. Derudi Column were, they were a band on Factory Records, but they were unlike a lot of other bands on Factory Records. This is kind of the flip side to what you imagine you know, was going on in the 80s in Manchester with the all-night raves and the ecstasy parties. This is sort of like the morning after music. Now the wine is starting to flow a little bit. People are starting to feel a little salty, as we like to say. So I, I want to play uh, Donnie and Joe Emerson, and the song is called Baby. They are these dudes who made one record in the 70s, and which no one heard when it came out. Oh, hey, baby. Cut to, you know, L.A. 2010. And I think Ariel Pink did a cover of the song and sort of brought it to attention. But it's really a perfect jam. It's so romantic and so beautiful and so totally wounded. All right, here comes the final song that gets everyone to vacate Mint Chip while making me very happy. It's this Ariel Pink song called Are You Going to Look Out for My Boys? The first time I heard it, I just, I couldn't stop listening to the song. And then I played it for one of my friends and she said, wow, this song is so annoying. It just does something to me, it's like catnip or something. Like it just, it riles me up. The, the repetition excites me. But I think for other people, uh, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know why they don't like it. I can't, I can't understand it. Well, of course I would never choose one of my own songs to play at my own dinner party. That would be so tacky. But if I had to, I think I'd go with uh, just one of the guys. Yeah. 
It's track three, man. On every record that I make, I always reserve track three as the special spot for the song that feels the most relevant lyrically at the time to me. No matter how I try to have an open mind, there's a little clock inside that keeps ticking. And if you listen closely, you can hear that clock ticking. The lady clock. I mean, not entirely. It's supposed to be funny, actually. I should have chosen the song about Hawaii, damn it. <laughs> I'm just another lady without a baby. A dinner party soundtrack from Jenny Lewis. Her latest album is called Voyager. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, Steve Martin takes banjo seriously. Very. Also, advice on life and music from our own crack etiquette team, Ricky Skaggs, Fred Armisen, and Weird Al Yankovic. For real when the Soul Music <laughs> Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Here's R&B singer Miguel telling me about the origins of his signature Yelp. What? That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's spelled W-A-H with an exclamation point. Um, I don't know where that came from, man. It just felt right. What, what is it again? <laughs> What? It feels really good, doesn't it? It does. I'm gonna. <laughs> Mine doesn't sound as good. It's all but... right. As long as it feels good, it's all right, man. It'll be okay. Yeah, baby. What? Baby, these R&B star Miguel. What? Well done, Rico. Getting closer. It's infectious. <laughs> right? Yeah. We played that for you because we're in the midst of an all-music episode of the Dinner Party Download. Whoop. And you know, if there's one thing musicians are known for, now you're getting a little colder, it's being well-behaved. So it's time for some music-themed etiquette. That's right. Each week, listeners send us etiquette questions, which we pose to famous folks. And right now, we're going to play you some of the music-related bits of advice they provided, starting with something from Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. They're best known as the stars and co-creators of the sketch comedy show Portlandia, but they're also both musicians. Right. Carrie, of course, was in the soon-to-be-reunited punk legend Sleater Kinney. Fred was a drummer for post-hardcore band Trenchmouth. One listener asked Fred and Carrie how to approach a celebrity who you only kind of recognize. Well, I I don't think one should be any more nervous or deferential about a performer than anyone else. So if you really don't know but are curious, I, I guess just be honest. I mean, Fred loves when he gets mistaken for Rick Moranis. And, uh... <laughs> it really happened. Uh, really? In Disneyland, really? in Disneyland, uh, a family from India... <laughs> The dad came up to me and, and told me that I was great in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> Which would make Rick Moranis look so amazing now. Because, oh, my God, you know, yeah. 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 But you were okay with that. You enjoyed that. I said, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes people say, Carrie Bradshaw, right? <laughs> Which is the character from Sex and the City. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just say, yeah, that's my name. There you have it, Carrie Brownstein. Not Bradshaw. Not Bradshaw. And Fred Armisen. They are two very understanding celebrities. Yes. And speaking of empathetic individuals, let's learn some etiquette from author Cheryl Strayed. Okay. She wrote the best-selling memoir, Wild. But she also spent years anonymously writing the online advice column, Dear Sugar. Yes. So we posed to her a bunch of listener etiquette questions, including this one about divvying up discos. So here's a question. It comes from Heartbroken Out West. After you break up with a significant other, who gets custody of the dance clubs you both like to go to? Yes. Well, there are a lot of people heartbroken out west, but not all of them <laughs> want custody of a dance club. 
Um, <laughs> You'd be surprised. The thing that d- delights me the most about this question is that dance clubs are plural. You know, that there's not just one <laughs> yeah, I dance know. club. I love this couple. This is a fun couple. And I think if there's more than one, one dance club in your life, you can probably divvy them up. Yeah. And so yeah. my advice is to list all the dance clubs, you know, sort of separate, <laughs> just like the way you'd separate, you know, your CD collection. Yeah. You know, not that people have CDs anymore, but back when I got divorced, right. you know, back in the Stone Ages, <laughs> that's what we did. Divvy up those dance clubs and maybe with time as people heal. They can, can start frequenting the same dance clubs and sure. have a little dance together. Do you have any yeah. method for divvying up the dance clubs? I mean, what if... You're right. I mean, maybe some of them, it's like, you know, they one has like a really great disco ball. Do, do dance clubs, what do they even have now? I don't I don't know. When's the last time you guys were in a dance club? Mm-hmm. Actually, I just came back from Europe. And so, I, you know how you're in Europe, you end up in dance clubs? It's just oh. one big dance club over there. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. That's you right. wake up, you're next to a naked Norwegian. All right, uh, next question. Author Cheryl Strayed, misbehaving even as she told our listeners how to behave. Her book was aptly titled. It was. Uh, moving on to the wild world of country music. You see what I did there? We asked bluegrass and country legend Ricky Skaggs to come on the show to offer some etiquette tips. Ricky's been playing music professionally since 1962 when he debuted on national TV at age seven. Right. So he's had plenty of time to record a lot of songs. Oh, that's right. One listener wanted to know if it's impolite for an audience member to shout out a request during a concert uh sometimes you know people will come up and ask me to do a song that someone else had a hit on and it's like <laughs> sorry i don't you know i don't know that song that's yeah. randy travis's song or something like that you know <laughs> oh, no. and, uh, but my roots were in bluegrass i mean i started playing bluegrass early in my life before i went to work with Amy Lou harris which that was really my first band uh, to play country music with you know commercial style country music. yeah nowadays you know since 1997 I came back to my roots and, you know, we get a lot of requests, you know, to do Honey, Open That Door, Heartbroke, or some of these songs that I had, you know, number one country hits on that it's kind of hard to do within a bluegrass configuration. It's just not. Yeah. Well, that's a good practical reason for not doing something. You're like, we we really don't have the instruments to make that happen. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We <laughs> we got eight people on stage, but we, we don't have <laughs> yeah. we don't have the instruments to make yeah. this happen. So they say, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you ever try out a bluegrass version of one of your old songs? That sounds like it could be fun. I've seen Dolly Parton do versions of, you know, Stairway to Heaven. Well, you know, me and Bruce Hornsby, my knucklehead friend that I love so much, he and I. <laughs> We did a bluegrass version of Rick James' Super Freak, uh, and it's, right. it's, uh, it's a sight to behold. So uh, wow. the elder folks don't really know who Rick James were, was, you know. And that, yeah. But, you know, when the, when the young kids hear, I'm loving it right now. Yeah, so it's pretty wow. uh, pretty cool. There you go, Stephanie. Just, so I guess the answer is if, if somebody requests a song that you don't want to play, just play Super Freak and bluegrass. That's it. Style. Exactly. Practical advice from Ricky Skaggs. Easy peasy. And now, let's move from one legendary musician to another, pop parodist Weird Al Yankovic, who also stopped by our studios to dispense etiquette tips. That's right. He advised one listener to knock out her sister with chloroform Mm -hmm. and told another to scream angrily during REM concerts. Neither of which we can fully endorse. So we're going to play you this clip of Al answering a non-etiquette question, which we pose to all our etiquette guests. 
The question is, what's the most memorable party you've ever been to? Ooh. I, I think 1984, October 1984, it was the uh, release party for Paul McCartney's film, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Oh, yeah. And a uh, wow. huge Beatles fan, and, and he, was, he was surrounded by press and media and hangers-on, and I slowly kind of weaseled my way up to him, and, and he knew who I was, which, which kind of blew my oh, mind. Yeah. Anyway, what really was memorable about that party was the cake. It was so good. It was like this, <laughs> this angel food cake with like the filling was like strawberries oh, yeah. and whipped cream. It was sure. like moist. Mm. Oh, yeah. I will never forget that, that cake. That stays with you. It does. The legendary Weird Al Yankovic remembering a legendary cake. All right. And finally, here's maybe our favorite etiquette moment in recent memory, courtesy of comedian and indie rock musician John Worcester. He drums for the Mountain Goats, Bob Mould, and Superchunk. At our live show in Raleigh, North Carolina, a listener asked him if it's okay when singing along to a rock tune to improvise her own lyrics if she doesn't know the real ones. I I think you should improvise as you see fit. Because yeah. okay. one of the greatest, funniest stories I've ever come across mm. is related to this. I used to work at a, a store called Record Bar. There was a guy that worked there named Rusty. And Rusty had a great story of uh, a woman coming up to him, this would have been 1982 or three, and said, I'm looking for that song about the cat. <laughs> and... And he goes, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, she goes, it's that song about the cat. <laughs> and, and he goes, ma'am, I really, I really don't know. Can you, like, sing some of it for me? And, and, and she goes, yeah, it's, um, it goes, um, Siamese's don't like it. Not the cat's fault. Not the cat's fault. Wow. And did you just make that up? No. And Rusty said he had to just like walk backwards into the into the storeroom. Drummer John Worcester wrapping up our little survey of music-themed etiquette advice. But you can send us etiquette questions about any kind of situation. Sure. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. You're listening to an all-music episode of The Dinner Party Download. And, Brendan, on this show, one of the more interesting conversations I've had about music was with a comedian. Steve Martin, of course. That's right. He is known as a movie star and, back in the 70s and 80s, a genius of absurd stand-up comedy. But in the last few years, his focus has been on bluegrass banjo, for which he has won two Grammy Awards. He is a talented man. Always throwing off the grade curve, that guy. Of course, banjo was a part of Steve's early comedy routines when we met. I asked him why. Well, in my comedy show, I, I really first started using it because I needed time. I needed at least 15 minutes on stage to fill an act, fill an act up. And I, at that time, I could do magic tricks. I had a few jokes, juggling, and banjo. But I also used it as my act grew and became more, let's call it, surreal. Yes. I liked the fact that I had something that looked hard because uh, I was worried that the audience might think, oh, he's just goofing around yeah. up there. And I wanted them to have something to land on that said, well, that looks hard. Maybe this other thing is not as just casual as it might look. So they kind of felt like they got their money's worth in a weird way? Well, in a weird way. But, you know, sometimes I, I remember seeing um, when I was in early 20s, seeing paintings by de Kooning that were very abstract. Mm. You know, when you, when you initially see an abstract painting, you, yeah. th you know, think, oh, that's easy. And then you see early drawings by de Kooning that are extremely detailed. They look like Holbein drawings. They're fantastically mm. detailed. Mm. And I thought, oh, this guy can actually draw. 
Sure. And uh, when you're young like that, it helps support the belief in an abstract painting. If he can do this, then the comedy must have also been... Been crafted a little bit more. I mean, that was what I was thinking. I I don't think it actually worked that way, but that's what I was thinking. (laughs) You know, remember, I was 20. I mean, it's interesting because there is a kind of the precision of banjo picking. It's not a coincidence that that goes hand in hand with comedy in a way. The timing even of your most surreal stuff is extremely crafted. Well, a lot of uh, comedians are musicians. Um, Is that right? No. Well, actually, Woody (laughs) Allen, I was thinking of Woody Allen, uh, plays clarinet. Kevin Nealon plays five-string banjo and guitar. Really? Yeah. Do you jam? Uh, Yes, we do sometimes. Uh, Will we get an album? I don't think so. Come on. (laughs) The comedians of of Bluegrass. Who would want to buy that? (laughs) Me. Anyway. Um, Just folk and country music in general seem more able to have humor grafted onto them than, say, rock and roll? Why do you think that that is? Well, in the early shows I saw in the 60s when folk music came to Orange County and bluegrass music came to Orange County, there was always a funny introduction to a song. And then the song could be deadly serious and still have a funny introduction. So that was just in my bones. Why do you think that is, though? Why why is it okay? Because it was a show. It was a show as much as it was a concert. In a folk concert. Right. And even when I first saw the Dillards, Doug Dillard, saw him live, it just, oh, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. He was lightning fast, and he always capoed up to the fifth fret, so the banjo sounded extra high-pitched and extra piercing and extra driving. And they just had great, great comedy. You were laughing, and then you'd just be thrilled and amazed when they sang the songs. And that's a trope of folk music. In rock and roll, it's not. You know, that's not something you come to the show expecting. Absolutely not. I remember once I was sitting in Lorne Michaels' office, and Mick Jagger called. He was, they were going to do the Super Bowl. Right, right. The Rolling Stones were going to play halftime. And he was looking for some jokes. And <laughs> For the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah. Mick Jagger? And I said, I said, I've got one. I said, how about this? Please, no photos. <laughs> now, I realized later, he couldn't have been asking for the show period. Maybe he was asking for the uh, for, interviews or something. Yeah, for but, when he meets people yeah. afterwards. But, Mick Jagger isn't going to pause his Super Bowl halftime show to deliver some one-liners. <laughs> The one and only Steve Martin. His latest bluegrass album is a live recording with the band the Steep Canyon Rangers and his collaborator Edie Brickell. It is weirdly called Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers with Edie Brickell live. (laughs) His genius does not extend to titling albums. Clearly. Anyway, folks, we're almost (laughs) at the end of our radio music festival here. You've heard from marquee names like Steve, Gustavo Dudamel, David Crosby. But we're going to close things out with a story from someone who also did great work behind the scenes. Right. Kenny Vance discovered Steely Dan, booked Prince and James Brown on Saturday Night Live, and scored movies like Eddie and the Cruisers. But before that, his doo-wop band topped the charts. They opened for the Beatles' first U.S. show and for another Brit invasion band. Here he is to tell that tale. Hi, I'm Kenny Vance, and I was in a group in the 60s called Jay and the Americans, and uh, we were uh, basically emulating vocal groups. Groups like the Moonglows, the Flamingos, the Drifters. And when I told her I didn't love her anymore. We had a lot of hit records because that was what was popular at the time, vocal groups. We were on Shindig and Hullabaloo, those TV shows. 
And then we got called to open the show at Carnegie Hall featuring the Rolling Stones, their first ever show in the United States. You know, we really didn't know who they were. We had heard that they played instruments, and that really wasn't cool. Because <laughs> groups that played instruments in those days were, you know, guys who played in the Holiday Inn. So we really didn't think too much of it. I don't think I've ever told this story, but the truth is, when before we would do a show, we would put pancake makeup on. It was like, you know, really cool. And so when I was backstage with the Rolling Stones, we shared the dressing room. And Brian Jones comes over to me and says, hey, mate, what's that? I said, it's a sponge. So he called over Mick Jagger. And the two of them used my sponge and put on pancake makeup before they went out to do the show. So we opened the show wearing alpaca sweaters and turtlenecks and tight sharkskin pants and doing steps and everything. And the crowd knew who we were and they liked the songs. They were hit songs. And then the Rolling Stones came on and, you know, they're wearing sweatshirts. Dungaree, you know, was like, what is this? And of course the girls and the whole crowd at the Carnegie Hall went crazy. I want to tell you how it's going to be. You're going to give your love to me. I want to love you night and day. There happened to be two shows that night, so the disc jockey comes backstage and he says to us, by the way, he says, you guys got to close the second show. We said, we can't do that. We can't follow these guys, and we didn't want to. He said, if you don't close the show, there's going to be a riot after the show. He figured he'd buy himself some time. So after the Stones closed their second show, we came out, you know, doing those steps. We were doing steps. And the audience was getting up and running out. We finished the song, we looked at each other, and we walked off the stage. The audience had cleared Carnegie Hall. Those oldies but goodies reminds me of you. I don't know how the other guys felt, but the writing was on the wall. In a certain way, it was like we needed to really start to rethink some of the things that we were doing musically. I thought to myself, I better get a guitar. <laughs> the songs they were playing, I never will forget. Kenny Vance, the latest album from his new group, Kenny Vance and the Planetones, is called Acapella. And folks, that is the closing act of this all-music episode of the Dinner Party Download. Jackson Musker produces the show. Christina Lopez handles our digital handles. Our intern is Ed Morales. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks to Robbie Carmen for engineering. All right. As always, you can catch our show for free on iTunes. Subscribe there or with your favorite app. And you'll never miss a show, including podcast-only episodes packed with all sorts of magic. A.K.A. us talking to interesting people. Yeah. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Till then, you can keep up with us on Instagram or Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNL. LD. Bon appétit.
Woo!